This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. Hello and welcome to the special Christmas Books of the Year edition of the Battleground podcast with me, Saul David and Patrick Bishop. Today, we're joined by James, our producer, who's over from Holland for the Goalhanger Christmas party, which we're all planning to visit later on. We also have with us Richard Foreman, publisher and writer who you'll remember spoke this time last year, Jesse Charles, prize-winning historian, and Roger Morehouse, who you'll all know as the more than capable co-host of the podcast when one of us isn't available. Okay, Patrick, you first. What did you enjoy reading? Well, I, to be completely honest, I didn't actually read a huge amount of non-work-related uh, books this year, but two uh, that caught my eye, two did catch my eye. Uh, and I just mentioned the first one here. That's The Red Hotel by... Alan Phelps, who, full disclosure, hey, he's an old colleague of mine, an old mate of mine, if I had lunch with him the other day, but he's written a superb book about the antics of the Foreign Press Corps, who were holed up in the Metropole Hotel in Moscow in the early 1940s. So there was a sort of policy that after Russia joined the war on our side, was rather forced into the war on our side by the fact that they'd been invaded by the Nazis. There was a kind of information policy on the British side to get some correspondence over there to tell the good news about the Russian war. So these uh, hacks were all sort of sent off there, expecting to be allowed to roam the front lines and send back stories of the heroics of the Red Army, only to find that actually they couldn't move out of the place, instead of which they were just plied with uh, vodka and Georgian champagne and caviar, and also interpreters who doubled as uh, sort of female companions in all senses. Uh, and so the whole thing was a typical kind of Soviet bit of uh, maskirovka. So the pretense of offering a sort of, you know, full and frank exposure of everything they were doing, and in fact it was all just designed to uh, keep them under wraps and feed them this stuff, which they very quickly fell into line and started serving up to their listeners completely phony stories about everything. And Alan's sort of broader point or contemporary point is that um, this is, you know, great Russian tradition and very much in keeping with what's going on today vis-a-vis Ukraine. So he tells the story brilliantly well. It's full of funny anecdotes, but also 
there are some sort of truths in there, very important, uh, serious points being made. Uh, Alan's a sort of fluent Russian speaker. We were colleagues on the Telegraph. He started at Reuters. I think he first went there when he was about 16 or 17. He had a, a Russophile mother. And it's a very droll, dry uh, story. Uh, great entertainment, but also you learn a lot from it. So, yeah, that's one of my picks. Uh, hello, everyone. I should just say four marks for Patrick's honesty, for not meaning that he's not read so much. Few marks for anything else, though. But uh, my pick, which is, uh, I mean, it's, it's to call it meat and drink for battleground listeners, I imagine which is uh, Conflict by uh, Andrew Robertson, General David Petraeus, which is a kind of romp through the kind of conflicts which are post-Second World War. It's a book of two halves where, I mean, uh, you know, they both worked on all of the book, but I suspect that uh, Andrew covered, you know, most of the conflicts. Uh, I mean, he's especially good on the Vietnam War after World War Two. But then the second half of the book, we get a great insight from General Petraeus where he was the kind of man on the ground and... In terms of, you know, serving in Afghanistan and Iraq, he really does shine a light on the kind of, you know, missteps that were made, uh, successes that were possible almost. And he doesn't shy away from being critical of his political paymasters, uh, often with conflict. And you could, you know, the argument is particularly uh, modern day conflict where there are a lot of missteps politically, where the military are pretty, you know, well trained and know what they're doing. But it's very difficult to kind of win hearts and minds if, if one hand is tied behind your back. So that's the kind of, you know, first pick, uh, which should especially kind of go down well with, with podcast listeners. You may have bought it already, but buy it again for a gift because actually it's, it's, it's an important book as well as an entertaining one. Is this a, is this a trend, the uh, military historian teaming up with the general? Because we also have Rob Lyman, don't we? It's and, well, uh, absolutely. Bash. I mean, the, the, the lessons that both of those books give is, is that even in times of peace, make sure you carry a big stick, basically, and don't de-arm too much. I mean, that's their lesson, uh, because actually the deterrent of having, a, a, a let's say, a large army, it's often proved to, to have worked. So you guys, are you going to get on the phone to Mike Jackson? I'm very tempted, actually. I think I think joint I think joint history books though are tricky to pull off. And what you will discover, and I think you can see in Andrew's book with the general, is that the historians cover the first half, which is of course history. And Petraeus has really uh, done the heavy lifting for the last two or three chapters, which are about events that he not only was involved in but played a hugely prom prominent role in. So that works quite well. But I, th I generally speaking, I, I don't know if you would agree with this, Patrick or Roger, the idea of somehow splitting a book between two people is always going to be a tough trick to pull off. The whole tone never seems to be quite right because we all write in very individual ways. What do you feel? Very true. I, I, my, my first book was co-authored with the great Norman Davies, great historian of Poland, um, a long time ago now, 20, 23 years ago. And yeah, it was a very difficult thing to do. I mean, in that in that case, I was the sort of the young gun, and he was the the master. But yeah, so that, in the sense that that smoothed the um, you know the the writing relationship because it was an apprenticeship for me to a large extent. 
Um, but even even having said that, it's still a it's still a difficult thing to pull off, and as you say, create a sort of coherent and stylistically coherent narrative. So it, it is a difficult thing, absolutely. I've done it twice now, and the problem is that each author thinks that the other one is crap at writing, uh, and so and so it goes back and forth. It can very quickly degenerate into a falling out, which um, did actually happen in in one case. So yeah, I mean the the old writer, writer the ego. There's a, a clash of egos that uh, you know, invariably ends badly. I mean, I mean, I won't name any names here, but two very distinguished historians that we know collaborated on a book, both individually complained to me, uh, saying, you know, I always thought, you know, when you read X's books, they always seem pretty good. But when I actually saw the raw copy, I was appalled. That's brilliant. <laughs> so, That's brilliant. Okay, we so want yeah, names. I would, I would say absolutely not. Will there be a nice sort of Easter egg paid for edition where you name the names? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that will something to look forward to. Yeah. Okay, Jess, what's your first of your choices? Following that theme, actually, in terms of collaboration, one great success story, and from my period, the sort of early modern 16th century uh, period, is a book called Armada, it was called the Spanish Armada. It, it came out in uh, 1988 to celebrate the 400-year anniversary of the defeat of the Spanish Armada. And it is a collaboration between Geoffrey Parker, who's a great, eminent, early modern historian, and Colin Martin, who's an underwater archaeologist. And it is a sort of, I described it in, in a review, a triumph of rubber and tweed, because they really do dovetail their work together. They've trawled the archives, they've trawled the shipwrecks, and they both found new things and it's it's wonderfully collegiate it's wonderfully collaborative and it shows how much historians can learn from archaeologists and scientists and vice versa and they've since 1988 they found all this new stuff so there's lots of geeky Jim Dixon kind of stuff about shipbuilding techniques and gun technology which actually is really fascinating and shows how the armada was defeated not the weather ships and guns really um, and then there's some wonderful human stuff that Jeffrey Parker's unearthed from the um, European archives my favorite um, was to be to be a Spanish officer you had to qualify for a knighthood in the orders of chivalry and in order to do that you had to pass four tests of legitimacy one was uh, you had you're not a bastard. You can be illegitimate. You couldn't be a heretic. You couldn't be a Jew, and you couldn't have an ancestor who'd worked for a living. So there was one guy who commanded a squadron, and you'll be all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They had rum, right? <laughs> they had, they, all that was, everything was fine apart from these things. So there was this one chap who had two grandfathers who were fornicating priests, but far, far worse than that. Uh, that he had a, a father who was rumored to have sold vegetables. And then <laughs> what I love is this quote, uh, which is sort of the qualifier, albeit homegrown, not the produce of others. That's small potatoes. So anyway, he managed to command the squadron, but only just. But I think that probably works because you've got two people in two different fields, so they're not going to tread on each other's toes. That's, that may be the formula. And a very healthy respect for each other's field, exactly. Yeah. Have you ever been tempted to collaborate? No, no, I'm far too precious. <laughs> <laughs> right, me. I've been, all of my sort of picks for Books of the Year, which I've done a few this, this year, um, I've always been bigging up Daniel Finkelstein's book, which has, I think, has, for me, has been outstanding. And I'm going, to, I'm going to do so again, shamelessly. Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Dad came out in the middle of the year. Um, it's very much a sort of personal family memoir. He basically tells the story of his, the remarkable survival of uh, both of his parents, 
through the trials and tribulations of the 20th century and the very worst that the 20th century can throw at people living in Central Europe. So his, the mother's side of the family were German Jews. This was the, um, the, the family of Alfred Wiener, he of the Wiener Library. Um, they escaped first to Holland in pre-1939, before war broke out, in the hope that they could escape what was coming. Of course, they couldn't. And she ended up, uh, his mother ended up as a, as a young girl uh, in Belsen, and actually survived on a Wadosh passport, which is the subject of my book. Um, that's not why I'm picking this up, of course. It's uh, entirely selfless. Um, but it's a remarkable, it's a thoroughly remarkable story on that side. And then the other side, his father's side, Polish Jews from Lwów, uh, from Eastern Poland, fell into the Soviet area of occupation after 39. His grandfather was deported to Siberia. Uh, his grandmother was deported to a collective farm in Kazakhstan. I mean, this is absolutely the worst situation that, that you know, people living in Central Europe could sort of imagine. And they all survived, and, they, and the two of them met in North London post-war and, you know, got together, and it's got, it's got that wonderful happy ending. But I think the, the credit of the book, what I, what I find the best aspect of it, I mean, we're, we're very familiar with the Holocaust story, so in a sense, there's not much new there, apart from, of course, that, that story of the Wadosh passports, which is very interesting. But what I think Danny has done so well with this is to bring what traditionally is kind of a narrow Polish story. You know, this one of, of Poles being deported to um, Siberia and Kazakhstan and so on, which affected, you know, by conservative estimates, about a million people. This is a major thing. Uh, and it's just not part of the conventional narrative of World War II. It's not part of the Western narrative. And he tells it so beautifully uh, and so personally with this sort of wealth of of papers and sort of family documents and so on. And he he really does a great job of bringing that story, which I've written about as well, but bringing that story to a much, much wider audience. And I've seen Amazon reviews of the book saying, you know, what the hell was that sort of Polish side? I've, n I've never heard of them being deported to Siberia and so on. So he's really bringing that to a really new audience. And, and I when think- When they survived, they were living in a mud hut? Like the yeah. Absolutely. Sort I mean, of the, minus 40 degrees. Yeah, I mean, the conditions are horrific. I mean, in, there are various other examples of that whole deportation. This, the inhumanity of the Soviet system at that time almost beggars belief, you know. It's not the deliberate industrialised killing of the Holocaust. It's kind of almost sort of crazed neglect. You know, they, they just didn't care. So there's various examples of these deportation trains, you know, getting to the end of the line somewhere in Siberia and then getting everybody out at gunpoint. And then the guards climb back on and the train raises steam and, and goes back down the track. And they're literally left in the middle of nowhere. So you either, you either build yourself a hut pretty quickly or you die. And large numbers of them just lay down and died. So it, it, it's an astonishing story that is so underknown in the Western narrative. And I think it's absolute credit to Danny that he's brought it to a, to a wide Western audience uh, in such an effective and uh, evocative way. Um, so that, to me, is the sort of highlight of the book. But it's it's really beautifully written, and I, I, I really recommend it. Yeah, I second that. I loved it. Great stuff. Okay, we're going to go uh, even further back in time than Jesse's for my first pick. And I'm amazed it's, uh, I've got all the way around the table, frankly, before someone's picked this one out, because I think it's the great publishing moment of the year. When Jonathan Sumption, Lord Sumption, who, let's face it, has had a day job for most of his life, and it wasn't being a historian, has spent 43 years writing the five-volume history of the Hundred Years' War. Each volume uh, beautifully produced, uh, you know, carefully argued, I mean, really elegantly put together, 
wasting very little uh, words, frankly, on setting the scene. It just takes you through this extraordinary period in our history. And of course, he's trumped it, I suppose, with the final volume, which uh, starts in 1422, which was, of course, uh, as uh, some of our listeners will know, a moment of great triumph for the uh, English in the sense that they had finally got in the form of King Henry V an agreement from the French that he would then become the joint monarch when the current monarch uh, was no more, the current King of France. That never came about because Henry V dies. And so the book starts at this moment of triumph, hence the, hence the title Triumph and Illusion, which is this fifth volume. And of course, it goes on through the years. It's interesting in the early 1420s, uh, the English win a series of crushing victories. And it reminds me, Patrick, a little bit of our endless discussion on the podcast about what really matters in war. Is it battlefield success or is it the long game, the big story, the sort of way things are going economically? And Jonathan Sumption, Lord Sumption, uh, lays out very effectively the reasons why England is beginning to go into decline at this point economically. And France is ultimately bound to win a war that is effectively being fought on French soil. Can you imagine the crushing psychological weight of starting a history of the Hundred Years War? Imagine it's bad enough doing the six years of the Second World War, but setting off down that path. Does he divide it up into a 10-year 20-year chunks, sorry, 20-year chunks. Roughly. And this last one is 20 years or so. And of course, it takes in one of the great stories, certainly from the French perspective, and that is Joan of Arc. And it is interesting, if I can mention this, I was sitting next to Jonathan Sumption at a dinner, dinner many years ago, fascinating evening. We were talking lots of history. And he did say that one of the greatest losses to academe was uh, Helen Castor, who was a good friend of mine. Helen, of course, has written one of the great books about Joan of Arc, and he must have been either reading it or thinking about it and possibly putting together this current volume when we had that conversation, although quite why he felt her loss to academe wasn't to the benefit of general history, is it wasn't entirely clear. I mean, it is a story of defeat after defeat for the English once you get into that book, though. I mean, we retreated faster than my hairline. <laughs> but we haven't really got anyone like Joan of Arc, have we, in our history? Because, I mean, she's still resonates in contemporary or near contemporary French politics. So the old National Front, now the uh, National Rally, the Le Pen family uh, political party, uh, their annual, I don't know what the date of her incineration was, but uh, yeah, they, they would gather at the gilded uh, statue of Joan of Arc, which is just on the right bank near the Louvre. Every year, um, during Vichy, I've just been finished a book on the liberation of Paris, and Joan of Arc was a huge sort of, you know, emblematic figure for the, both Vichy and indeed for for the free French forces as well. But we haven't got we haven't got our own Joan of Arc, have we? There is something to be said about that, the sort of the child, often a girl, prophet. Yeah. And there was there was the maid of Kent in the 16th century who sort of made all these prophecies about Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. And it's the same thing. You have these rather powerful men taking, well, not taking advantage, but pouncing on it and uh, making it sort of very profound for the state of the nation. And yes, you see that right now, right up to the present day. There is, of course, the Indian Joan of Arc, the Rani of Jansi, and uh, followers of Flashmore will remember the depiction of her uh, in, in that book. But in reality, she was extraordinarily brave, uh, morally courageous, as well as physically courageous. 
uh, faced with an impossible situation, which was really the, the loss of, of her son's birthright, uh, and then the chaos of the mutiny, and what do you do to somehow try and stabilise things? Well, she took back control of her territory, and then thereafter, of course, was accused by the British of rebelling, and really had no choice but to throw a lot in with, with the rest of the rebels. And of course, it ultimately cost her her life. But it is one of the great stories of Indian history, and she's still revered there as one of the four great figures of Indian independence because she died in battle, killed, so I discovered uh, in my researches, by a trooper of the 8th Hussars who actually wrote a small account. So that was one of the totally original nuggets in my Indian Mutiny book that finally laid to rest the reason how and why she died. I'm, I'm tempted to say one of two. But, uh, I mean, uh, George MacDonald Fraser, who wasn't known for being kind to many people in history, I believe he was quite fond of her. Yeah, it was very tempting for George MacDonald Fraser, of course, to have the kind of Flashman story and to somehow undermine the the uh, the fame of the Rani of Jansi. But he handles it beautifully. He handles it very delicately. And there's absolutely no indication that there was any impropriety at all. Because, of course, the British, to blacken her name, were constantly saying she was a seductress. And uh, But there's zero evidence that that was ever the case. Yeah, I don't know if our, our listeners, because we've got a pretty global reach on uh, Battleground, haven't they? If they know about George MacDonald Fraser and Flashman, it's a bit of uh, my kind of era. We were brought up on, I read my first one when I was about 18 or something, and then read every single one as soon as it came out. I think you younger guys probably still enjoyed Flashman, but I think below, anyone below the age of 40, 35, probably doesn't know much about it. It's kind of gone out of style, hasn't it? I have read a couple of Flashmans, but I mean, it is what it is. A bit like reading Bakken or something. But I like the way just then you uh, you looked at Saul when you said you younger chaps, which is <laughs> <laughs> very sweet. I'm looking at James, of course. James, have you read any Flashman? No, I've barely heard of him, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the conceit is a brilliant, brilliant conceit, is that also people of my era were still brought up reading Tom Brown's School Days. And, and in Tom Brown's School Days, which was... When did that come out? The mid nineteenth century or something like that. Yeah, eighteen fifty. Um, the the kind of bully at, at school at rugby school uh, is this um, loutish uh, degenerate called Flashman. And Harry so Flashman. Harry Flashman. So George Macdonald Fraser had the brilliant idea of saying, you know, basically writing what Flashman did next. And he goes off. He's in every battle in a completely unheroic role. He's a sort of lecher and coward drunkard etc etc um, but always somehow manages to come out smelling of roses a fantastic idea but in it needs to be in the hands of a fantastic and indeed very uh, historically literate uh, writer to do it justice and fraser was the man to do it he's a superb character actually yes okay let's move on patrick what's number two on your list or possibly two and three what have you got next uh, i've got as number two charles glass soldiers don't go mad it's just come out and I, again i have to declare an interest here although it's got nothing to do with my choice really but but charlie charlie is an old old pal of mine we go back a long way we've been in many a War zone together. I think first met Charlie in in Lebanon shortly before he was kidnapped. He was kidnapped by Hezbollah and managed to escape. Uh, so uh, he's a bit of a sort of Flashman esque character, I suppose, in that respect himself. So Charlie, he's rather a dashing uh, figure, as I think you would agree, wouldn't you, Jesse? I certainly would. He's also a great writer, and he really knows his stuff. He's been around for a long time and sort of has written very, very good books on the Middle East 
uh, Tribes Without Flags is an absolute classic. Anyway, this is different territory for him, really. Although he has written actually book, uh, books about uh, Paris during the war, very good, good book about the Americans who stay behind in Paris and their adventures. But this is going back to the First World War, and it's really sort of digging into the origins of PTSD and focusing on two famous figures uh, of the era who suffered mental breakdowns, I suppose, as a result of their experiences in the trenches, Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon, and the treatment they received at Craig Lockhart uh, in Scotland, and the rather kind of pioneering work of the of these psychiatrists who dealt with them. And it kind of in, it weaves the story of the understanding, slow understanding of what, first of all, it was called shell shock and all the various iterations it's been through since, and how it was dealt with. But it's also about the development of the poetry. It's a very, very, uh, it's a sort of very challenging notion that um, Charlie sets out with it. But I think I think he he deals with it extremely well, very thought-provoking. It tells you more than... I learned a lot new about Owen and, and about Sassoon and indeed had it took a different view of the or rather improved my understanding of the poetry uh, you, you've read it as well haven't you Jesse I have I loved it and I, I sort of I love the way Charlie's American um, and he's got that sort of clipped laconic American reportage style which works so well with this because you have the sort of very brutal jagged edges of the barbed wire and the shrapnel and there's a lot of backstory um, about Somme Valley and life in the trenches and how they became not just shell-shocked but sort of grief-stricken and just the attrition of it all um, trench fever Um, he sort of makes the point that it's never really one thing that it's sort of this just constant hell in fact, I think Sassoon said this lovely line. I mean, a lot of it is prose as well as poetry, isn't it? Which I didn't realise that they were so good at that too. And he, he described the Battle of Somme, which he was there as, uh, he said, I'm looking at a sunlit picture of hell. Um, so there's that. And there's, there's all this sort of gory stuff about decomposing contorted bodies. But then, as you say, there's just this lovely, lyrical, mellifluous poetry that sort of wraps a velvet glove around it all. And the contrast and the tension between those two. And yeah, basically the history of, treating PTSD and these these soldiers they had these doctors they had you have Sassoon being treated by someone called Dr Rivers and Owen being treated by someone called Dr Brock and they have very different techniques Rivers sort of let them get on with it as long as they turned up for their sessions Brock was much more they had to be grounded back in the earth they had to connect with nature they had to go and do lots of sport and it worked for each man and they both won military crosses they were brave men um, but and then actually they both went back, didn't they? And then Owen, Sassoon survived, but Owen died four days before the end of war and, and his mother got the telegram while everyone else was celebrating armistice. Well, my second book is another kind of romp through the 20th century, but this time uh, through the eyes of, of, of sort of uh, the intelligence community. So this is the book Spies by Calder Wharton that, that came out this autumn. And it's excellent. I mean, his argument is that, you know, Theoretically, the Cold War started as, as soon as uh, Lenin started to sit on his throne and the Cheka were, were inaugurated. And, you know, the enemy was the West. And the West never really found out about it till halfway through the Second World War, really, where, you know, they were, you know, uh, allies. But, you know, Russia, in terms of the resources that it devoted to espionage, just completely eclipsed what the, the UK and, and US were doing. And it's just an excellent book where it's, I mean, obviously he's been scholarly, but he does have a lightness of touch when, when writing. 
And, you know, as, as we know, it's, the, you know, the Cold War went back a lot further than we think. But also, indeed, you know, for Battleground listeners, you know, the evil empire is alive and well now. And he does bring it up to the present with uh, a coda devoted really to the Chinese and just, you know, the way that they have certainly learned lessons from both the Americans and uh, the Soviets about, in a sense, how to spy and the, the effectiveness of it, where, you know, the US and, and the Brits have been very good at signal intelligence throughout the past hundred years. And China have got very effective of that through technology. But then the Russians were great at, you know, human intelligence and recruiting people. And China are also on the ball of that. I mean, there's some, you know, frightening statistics that I think the FBI, I may be misquoting, but they almost start, you know, a hundred investigations of Chinese potential espionage each week. Uh, Potentially the Chinese have stolen 340 billions worth of intellectual property over the past 20 years. And I don't know, I just, uh, I, I was gripped by it. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a tome, but I, I did race through it. So I would recommend that because it's a romp and it's entertaining. Yeah. Okay, we're just going to take a quick break. Do join us for part two when we'll be discussing more books of the year. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX is The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Okay, welcome back to part two of the special Books of the Year edition of the Battleground podcast. We've got to Jessie Charles giving her second uh, suggestion. What is it? This is a book that's just come out, I think last month, and I loved it. It's called A Nasty Little War, The West's Fight to Reverse the Russian Revolution. And it's by Anna Reid, who um, is an expert on Eastern Europe, former Ukrainian correspondent for The Economist. Um, She wrote that brilliant book, Borderlands. Uh, She wrote about the siege of Leningrad. So now she's taking on um, the Russian Civil War, the uh, sort of between... 1918 to 20, really, after the Russian revolutions of 1917. And I remember reading uh, an interview or an article by Max Hastings in the Society of Authors magazine a couple of years ago. And he was sort of giving advice about how to have a a long and successful career. And one thing he said was stay on brand. Uh, And the other thing he said, which is obvious, really, but I certainly don't take the advice, which is uh, choose subjects that that are guaranteed to sell. Um, And so he had said to his agent, I want to write about the Russian Civil War. And his agent had said, over my dead body, it's a squalid little story without a happy ending. Um, And it is a squalid little story and there is no happy ending, um, except for Estonians and Latvians who gained independence. But it is so resonant and not just in terms of the place names, obviously, you know, Kiev, Odessa, Herson, you know, you hear it. Not even in terms of, this, you know, you, you get a sense of the burgeoning nationalism, political nationalism, at least of this time. But also just other things like the way the British especially um, disregarded and, and played down the anti-Semitism of the whites and, and, and the white army I'm talking about. who fought against the Bolsheviks, the Red Army, and how they 
disregarded the atrocities and also just you know on a basic level about you know when to intervene when not to um when is it good when isn't it you have the brits who think the white russians who they're fighting for against the bolsheviks who think that they're corrupt and incompetent and and marred by infighting and then you have this wonderful account the, the russians who think that the brits just aren't quite committing enough who are fobbing them off um and there's this wonderful account by one white russian general uh, who's talking to this very sort of back-slapping, jovial Brit. And he says he's, he's staring at him and he can't quite figure out whether he's talking to a clever and cunning man or a complete and utter simpleton. <laughs> and I sort of, th- you know, when you, when you see Zelensky talking to Boris and then Rishi and now David Cameron, you can almost see that flicker behind his eyes when he's thinking the same thing. You know, Who am I going to glad have next month? You know, so anyway, it's a very good book. It's beautifully written. And despite the horror... And despite the complexity, it's very lucid. And there are yeah, these funny moments. I had that on my list as well, Jesse. And I, I, I mean, I, I loved it. It's such a complex story. Um, but she handles it so well. And it's, be- it's got that lovely sort of light journalistic touch. You know, this is a story that, that sort of spans the Eurasian continent, doesn't it? So it's very difficult to create any sort of coherent you know, narrative arc out of it to some extent. But she does it brilliantly well. And a lot of that, you know, there's, this, there's themes of the Western powers kind of being, this is the end of the war, the end of the First World War. They've already bled themselves out on the Western front and they don't really want to be there. The troops don't want to be there. You know, there's this sense of sort of ennui about the whole thing, which comes across. And then the, and then the Russians, just the ordinary Russians that they encounter are spectacularly corrupt. And you can see them all thinking, what the hell are we doing here? What are we doing here risking our lives for this? You know, um, but she brings it together so beautifully well with so many anecdotes and so many sort of old, old dusty memoirs where God knows where she's dug them up from, but creates this beautiful narrative, which I think it, it really glowed for me. It was really, really resonant. And it has this wonderful resonance with, with what's going on now, because, you know, we have with Ukraine, if, you know, with a following wind, if Ukraine is successful, We'll fingers crossed, you know, in 2024. One of the great fears, I think, of the West, the West at the moment, is that that would result in Putin falling and Russia falling apart. And in a sense, this was this book is about when Russia was, to a large extent, falling apart. And it's about chaos. It's about chaos and murderous chaos at that. So, not that I don't wish Ukraine all the best, but again, you've got that shadow of you know a Russian collapse, which would be a bloody mess in every way um so fantastic book beautifully written and and well worth your time happy christmas everyone <laughs> but there is a sort of sense of con- continuity or continuing chaos isn't there about all this stuff and you know I, I think last time even last year i think i was talking about bulgakov's the white guard which is written contemporaneously about all those comings and goings in the civil war you know, you go to bed and the town's in the hands of the whites. You wake up in the morning, it's in the hands of the reds. And then the same thing happens a week later. And all these sort of strange generals, you know, Denikin, Wrangel, they're, they're very powerful figures. Uh, and they're like a lot of the, uh, the big political figures who still cast a shadow over the place, they're very difficult to actually make a clear judgment on. So someone like Denikin appears to be a sort of anti-Semite, and indeed, you know, under his command, his troops to carry out a fair amount of pogroms and all the rest of it. But in other cases, he defends the Jews. They're all, you know, complicated, conflicted figures, and you still see that again today. So uh, if Anna Rito, I'm a great fan of, has, has made sense of it, that's uh, something 
to look forward to. I shall put that on my Christmas uh, present list. I just just a last word. I'm, I read last year, I think it was um, Anthony Beaver's book on the Russian Civil War, which is kind of related but separate. I mean, they, the two kind of merged to a large extent, but that was on the Russian Civil War. And I thought, in in contrast, and I'm a big fan of of, um, of Anthony's work, but I thought that was that was quite muddled. He to me, he didn't succeed well enough in making sense out of that, making a real sense out of it. And I think Anna Reid does, and that's that's the difference. I can't believe we've got to the end of round two and no one's mentioned the elephant in the room, the forgers. So this is the first book. Roger has. Briefly. This is the first book, of course, that has actually been written by one of the five of us uh, giving the recommendations around this table. It's Roger's extraordinary story. I really honestly thought there cannot be any more great Holocaust rescue stories still to be told and yet here it was i mean he's already spoken uh, about the one of the characters that uh, benefited from this and 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 that of course is danny finkelstein's mother which he bases his book on but roger tells the broader story of the so-called wadosh operation now if i was going to pronounce that in my normal way as you all know i'm a great mangler of pronunciations i'd have said ladosh because it's l-a-d-o-s but roger assures me it's wadosh and Wadosh was the Polish ambassador in Switzerland, and he and a number of other diplomats and also Jewish activists came up with the brilliant idea of forging identity documents for Latin American countries, which they then smuggled into German-occupied Europe, and these were used by Jews to uh, avoid being sent to the death camps. Not entirely sure how many directly involved, but it's certainly in the hundreds and possibly in the thousands. Is that fair, Roger? Yeah, the, the, the current logic is that they reckon about between two and 3,000 may have survived. They issued 10,000 documents, but they reckon between two or 3,000 survived. Of those, we know about 850. So obviously, Danny um, prefigured your book in the sense that he got his out first, and he did very well, as indeed yours has. I mean, Talk about critical appraise. Um, happy with sales, or do you think Danny nicked some of your? Um, it's a difficult one. I, th- I mean, he he was very generous. We did a couple of events together in the autumn as well, which was fantastic. Um, it's difficult to see what to sort of judge whether you know I I lost sales or whether I gained because he sort of prepared the way. So, but as I said, he was very generous. So I, I don't have any complaints in that. Yeah, department. he's given you one of the best quotes of all, actually, hasn't he? So, uh, but anyway, brilliant book and really unusual. I mean, Patrick and I writing Second World War would come on to that when we talk about what's happening next uh, in terms of our books. But we've written many tales of the Second World War, but this was genuinely new territory for me that I'd never heard of before. And given it, it's the whole course and that's had a lot of attention it's pretty remarkable so many congratulations roger fantastic book i'll second that as well i mean i i read the book in in proof probably a, a fair few months ago but it has gained relevance as well i mean obviously it's partly the story about some civil servants who are decent and free thinking but there, there's the wider story of the uh, holocaust and in terms of what's thrown around in the last couple of months, the words Holocaust, Nazi Germany, Hitler, etc., read Roger's book to uh, crystallise uh, kind of what actually happened during this time. It's 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 basically an education, and as bleak as it is, it's also enlightening. And uh, if you want to ruin your Christmas, read The Forgers. And, and very cinematically written as well, I'd add. I mean, it, writing matters so much, especially when it's, well, as you say, the, the niche part of the subject, the, the passports, people don't know about the Holocaust, though people do. So you need beautiful writing. And, and, and your opener is so gripping. 
you know, this one chap who sort of waves this piece of paper and is saved by it. And I love, uh, I love the way you write about the EVIA conference as well, which is, again, so resonant. I mean, we're, we're all talking about books that are resonant, aren't we? But it's every, you know, pretty much every country going, yes, the refugee problem is, is terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible, but we're full. We, you know, we, we, we can't possibly deal with it. Maybe, maybe someone in South America could or you know, Africa. But boy, yeah, no, well done. Can I just add my voice too to the chorus of praise for Roger Morehouse's The Forgers? It's getting embarrassing. I must again be frank and say that you know I've just been so overwhelmed with other stuff that I've only just started reading it. But I tell you who has read it, and that's my wife, Henrietta. She is a very stern critic, and she absolutely loved The Forgers. So I think that is very, very high praise indeed. Thank, thank her for me. Great stuff. Okay, final uh, contribution by everyone. First of all, any last books that we haven't mentioned? And then what's coming up, both for you, Patrick, you're starting off, and possibly for anything else you know upcoming in the next year? Well, my book, Paris 44, The Shame and the Glory, is coming out in July to coincide with the 80th anniversary of the liberation of Paris. Uh, so it's one of those exercises where the research is is fantastically absorbing and is just a pleasure to do but the writing was very complicated trying to weave all these stories together it's not just about it's actually not a military history book at all it's it's a it's a book about a lot of things but it's i've chosen some interesting characters to tell the story through some of them are pretty well known like jd salinger who was at the liberation with the fourth infantry division ernest hemingway of course I was really got into the, the history of the French Communist Party and that led me to some people I knew quite a lot about before but wasn't aware of just how kind of significant and how interesting they were. Uh, one of them was a, a man called uh, Misak Manukian who was a, uh, an Armenian poet. He was orphaned in the great Armenian genocide brought up in Lebanon and uh, of course under French control so he learned French and went off to Paris worked as a metal worker, became a communist, but kept on writing his poetry, a very, very significant poet and champion of, of uh, Armenian literature. When the war began, he quite soon became a militant and uh, ended up leading a group called the Frontireurs Partisans, uh, but the, a particular department of it, which is largely made up of Jewish immigrants, uh, immigrant workers, and they were by far the most effective of the of the communist fighters. They actually pulled off some brilliant coups. They killed the the German who was in charge of the forced labor operation in France, but wasn't particularly well treated by the French Communist Party. There's a suspicion that they were actually not betrayed, but when they weren't protected as much as they might have been, they were ultimately betrayed. And 23, virtually the whole lot of them, were um, put on, on a show trial and then shot. But Manukin was a wonderful, magnificent man. There's a, a poster was put up by the Germans uh, of the what they call the Manukian gang. And it's one of the most moving things you'll ever see. These sort of raggedy, long-haired, largely Jewish young men who'd actually had the guts to stand up to the Nazis, take huge risks and actually land some punches on the occupiers. And just before their death, they're pictured and they have this wonderful kind of defiant look in their eyes, incredibly moving. Anyway, this is a long way of saying that in February, the French have finally given Manukian and his men their due, and Manukian is going to be entered into the Pantheon, the Pantheon, uh, which is where the great heroes of France are interred. And so I'm going to, on February the 23rd, I'm going to be there. I've got a ticket to go and see Manukian 
being entered into the Pantheon. So that's going to be the highlight of my spring. I think I should be invited too, actually, because one of my... No, I'm not kidding you. One of my great-grandmothers is called Manukian, uh, which is the female version, or Manuk, possibly. Uh, Elizabeth Manuk. Um, so could they have been connected? Who knows, Patrick? But great stuff. We, we should also remind listeners that the one of our strands next year is going to be Battleground 44 when... At some stage, of course, Patch, we will, we will be getting to the story of the liberation of Paris. Richard, what have you got for us? Well, in terms of what I'm up to at the moment, it's about a third of a bottle of brandy. Uh, but uh, next year, I'm, I'm helping to produce uh, a, a podcast called Spy Masters, which is, is going to be hosted by the wonderfully smart uh, Antonia Senior. And it's going to deal with basically espionage writing, both fiction and nonfiction. And, you know, it, there will be crossover in terms of interest for, for the, the, the battleground listeners. So that's one of the things that's going to be kind of quite fun and interesting. And the other thing in terms of a, a last minute Christmas stocking filler would be kind of never surrender uh, the aspects of history kind of collection on, on the Second World War. And there's a fair few authors around the table that have, have contributed. And I mean, I basically associate this book with the toilet where it's a great loo read. You can dip in and out of it. It's it's great fun. I, I would recommend you've still got time to buy it now and then re-gift. So that's my recommendation. <laughs> um, I want to mention two books. Actually, I want to mention lots of books, but quickly some books that I, we haven't spoken about yet. She, she came in with reams of notes, listeners. She came in with reams of notes. Well, that's only because of last year. I thought I was only talking about my own book and had to quickly scramble for thoughts. Yeah, um, I'd, my notes are for the um, the subtitles because I always forget the subtitles. But James Holland's Savage Storm: Italy Campaign of 1943 is um, brilliant, and it's sort of probably the most purely military of the history books so far discussed. But he's written what 30, 40 books on the Second World War or something, and he says in this that it's the most moving one he's written yet and he actually has a final line he sheds a tear for, for all the people lost in savage storms civilians and soldiers then and now and it's brilliant um, as all his books are and one f that's actually coming out next year that I would love to mention um, you've read it too haven't you Saul in Proof Four Shots in this is why I need my notes night, I, I was going to say The Dark Four Shots in the Night you're right by Henry Hemming and it's about the killing uh, by the IRA uh, the nutting squad it's of someone working for a British agent, working for MI5, Frank Hegarty. And why it's so interesting is that the person who assassinated him, the member of the Nutting Squad, was probably a British agent as well. Well, he was known as Steak Knife. Um, probably Freddy Scaptici, but he denied it uh, to his de death. Or actually, is he dead? I'm not sure he is dead. He's just died. Um, but what Henry Hemming does so well is, is it's just a total thriller. It, it really is. And, and it's this sort of sinewy spy story, but it is also a wider history of the Troubles. And of course, it's 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement this year. So he's done that incredibly well. And it, it really, at its heart, is the spymaster's dilemma. You know, how far do you let your agent go? Can you ever justify killing? How many lives can justify one death? Uh, should a spy master always protect his agents? Um, should services um, keep that information private or not? I mean, it's very hard for services sometimes because they're told that they're keeping things hush hush when actually quite often they're being quite open. But it's you know it's just it's just a brilliant, thrilling book, edge of seat stuff. So look out for that. I think in March, next March. And your own news, Jesse. 
Well, I'm very slow. <laughs> um, so it's, there's nothing much coming out next year. I'm going to be deep, deep in research. I'm not following Matt Hastings' advice about staying on brand. I'm going to the 20th century. I'm doing family history, which is going to be interesting in like not just to me but you know, I think that's the challenge with memoirs and family history it has to be interesting because of the history not because of your connection to it but it's sort of um through a white Russian grandmother whose father came from Bakhmut in fact and British Ministry of Information diplomat civil servant dot 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 grandfather um for, through their lives it's sort of looking at the end of empire the russian civil war which is why i'm very interested in the russian civil war right now and then the end of the ottoman empire because their honeymoon was called short by a telegram from fridtjof nansen who was the head of the league of nations high commission for refugees calling them back to constantinople to deal with the refugee fallout of the second smyrna so, so it's sort of the end of the ottoman empire and then the third part is the end of the british empire and the second world war where my grandfather sort of pops can up. i broach the issue but do you have a working title uh no not you're not a good enough one yet i would i do but it's gonna get better so <laughs> any any advice I'll, uh, there's a it sort of centers on this brooch that my grandmother smuggled out of russia uh, after the revolution after the civil war and it's her father bought it in petersburg and in, in the fabergé shop but it's workshop of fabergé not fabergé but it's very small and it fitted into the palm of the hand she sewed it in her coat and I only just found it uh, late last year. My mother opened a deed box, suddenly realized, oh, 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 darling, I've got a deed box. And there it was at the bottom, wrapped in tissue paper in a very simple tin. So that sort of is what triggered this. I mean, I've always been interested, but this is what's actually really triggered me looking into the archives and, and fact checking and finding amazing stuff, but a long way off. Just a quick question, Jess. You've been working in the 16th and 17th centuries where sources are relatively scanty 20th century big big change so is that a lot of fun is that daunting is that disorientating i mean how have you found that it's yeah it's it's amazing i find myself uh, the day disappears very quickly because you find yourself uh, looking at i was looking at the duke and duchess of windsor and looking at british pathé footage and there my grandmother and grandfather pop up in miami in 1940 when wallace goes off to get her teeth fixed and he's sort of keeping an eye on them and then after that then i'm suddenly looking at russia and then i'm looking at constantinople and um yeah so in some ways it's daunting and i feel like i've got to school myself in a lot of areas before i can talk about them but in another it's really liberating because for the early modern period you sort of feel like if you don't know every source you failed whereas with this you can't possibly so you just pick the best bits i think I hope. <laughs> Funny, I always find that my grandparents pop up in Pathé news footage of the royals as well. <laughs> Happens all the time. Is that prison? prison? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cleaning something. Brilliant. Thank you, Jesse. I like that. Right, so my next few months, I've got, I'm, I'm halfway through a project at the moment on uh, the U-boat war, which is fantastic fun. Lots of very gritty material from the German perspective of the... I think it's not an exaggeration to say the living hell of spending uh, any time on a German U-boat in World War II was absolutely horrific, uh, not least the stench. Better than being sunk by one. Well, yes, better than, well, I mean, the the problem, (laughs) the problem, what was it, actually? I mean, if if you were sunk by a U-boat, at least you could get into a lifeboat and you could, uh, you know, hopefully sail away. The the U-boats that tended to get, you know, depth charged tended to go straight down uh, and then, you know... They got das boot, indeed. Um, so that's my next uh, foreseeable future. I'm going back to the German archives uh, for a couple of trips in the spring. 
I'll probably drag my wife around lots of, you know, German U-boat pens in the summer. She loves that. That's sort so of thing. romantic. <laughs> she loves that sort of thing. Uh, so yeah, so so that's the next few months anyway. So that that's that's well advanced, and that will be uh, be finishing that next year. In terms of my last book, I want to again. It's a little. It's a got a personal. Not like Patrick, where I'm just sort of going through my old address book. My favourite lecturers from back in the day when I was at the School of uh, School of Slavonic Studies, University of London. Uh, was Martin Rady, who's just retired. He was Masaryk Professor of Central European History uh, at UCL. An utterly brilliant man who speaks a slew of languages, Central European languages, you know, has been at every level of sort of education. I know he was a school teacher for a while and then he went, went on to uh, university teaching and then, and then finally professor. Uh, so tremendously knowledgeable, tremendously accessible as well. He was never averse to going for a pint after a seminar, which was always a good sign from my, from my perspective. And his, I think it's fair to say his magnum opus uh, came out this year as well, which is called The Middle Kingdoms which is a history of Central Europe. It's a history of, you know, the lands between what we might broadly call Germany and Russia, historically. And it's a very important area that I think I said earlier on with when I was talking about Danny Finkelstein's book, that a lot of the history of that area, which is something that I'm, it's an area that I'm very sort of passionate about, is not well enough understood in the Western narrative. And when you bear in mind that, you know, two world wars have started in Central Europe and potentially what we're seeing at the moment might be a third world war uh, also starting in Central Europe in those, you know, liminal lands between broadly Germany and Russia. It doesn't take a genius to, to see that this is actually a vitally important part of the world. Uh, and we owe it to ourselves, surely, to understand it a bit better. And his book is fantastic. It goes from prehistory all the way up to modern day. Um, it sounds daunting and it is a big tome. I would absolutely grant it's a big tome, but it's it's written with such a lightness of touch. It's a, it's actually laugh out loud funny. Uh, almost every paragraph has at least a guffaw in it for the reader. You know, it's really, it's got a lovely touch. He writes very, very well. I mean, again, I, I, I would add the phrase for an academic, but he writes beautifully well. Academics don't tend to write that well, but he does. And, you know, I absolutely recommend it. it we, it's an area we need to know better. And, and that's a perfect introduction. When I was in the pub earlier with Roger and he did sing the book's praises, but there, I just want you to just add about the Polish encyclopedia, yeah. which you have just forgotten. Yes, I did. Yeah, he, he, I mean, one of those guffaws was, you know, he, he wrote about, I think it was the 18th century when they started writing, um, you know, compiling encyclopedias. And there was a Polish encyclopedia was compiled at the time in very much in imitation of what Diderot was doing in, I assume, in Paris at the same time. And they wrote this first Polish encyclopedia. Um, and it concluded that, you know, there are various sort of sensible entries. And then they, they concluded that penguins were actually a hoax which I thought was quite amusing. <laughs> and then there was an entry for a horse and it said a horse. And then basically, well, it's a horse. I mean, a horse was obviously something so self-evident to a pole that it didn't need explaining. So there's all these sort of little touches like that that really sort of make it come alive. And as I said, it's got, it's got a guffaw in every, in every paragraph. Roger's mention of the U-boat pens and the fact that his uh, long-suffering wife may be visiting them shortly uh, reminded me of my own honeymoon when we were in Krakow, one of the most beautiful cities in Eastern Europe and certainly in Poland, given that Warsaw was destroyed in the war and Krakow was not. Uh, but anyway, while we were there, I said, well, we really should visit Auschwitz, shouldn't we? And this didn't go down terribly well, but I have to say... Um, 
we did it and we were both pretty pleased we did but this is the this is the long-suffering experience of a wife of a historian i'm afraid if you make the mistake of traveling with us that's what's going to happen so and children ha- and children i would add sort of driving rain battlefields have you yours have, have yours had that experience you have to bribe them a lot yeah disneyland <laughs> Is next, I promise. <laughs> so what's happening next for me? Well, uh, I'm working on a book, which no doubt I've mentioned before on the podcast. That is Tunis Grad, the uh, third great turning point of the Second World War. The other two being, of course, Stalingrad, which is where Tunis Grad gets his name, actually, because the Germans at the time were saying, well, hold on a second. This is as bad, if not worse, than Stalingrad, hence Tunis Grad. Um, but forthcoming, uh, very exciting, uh, just like Patrick, I've got a book set in 1944. I no, that's not the reason why we decided to do Battleground 44. Uh, we chose it because it's the 80th anniversary and we want to pick up on what was really the, the, one of the key moments of the Second World War. But the story I'm telling is airborne in the Second World War, Sky Warriors, from the beginning in 1940, when they really didn't know what they were doing. They had no idea whether parachutes would work, these flimsy sort of silk appendages, which really hadn't caught on hardly at all, certainly not in the British uh, mind. And also going to war in gliders, which is effectively like going to war in a tube, you know, wood and steel and crash landing. So absolutely mad. And of course, all the people who were drawn into that world, a little bit like the SBS book I've written before, were characters who wanted to get into the action sooner rather than later, these sort of daredevils who, many of whom, of course, were not going to survive. And 1944 is relevant because, of course, the two great moments really of British Airborne take place that year, both triumph and failure. The triumph being, of course, the D-Day operation, um, Operation Tonga, including the Pegasus Bridge action, but also, of course, the disaster later on in the year, Arnhem, which I have argued was maybe not as foolhardy as some previous historians have suggested. So watch out for that one. Um, Bloody hell, that's strong. I can't even... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm drinking oh I'm God. drinking Grand Prestige uh, which James has brought over from Holland and it is 10% so if my if my diction's going slightly that's the reason okay we'll wrap up now uh, a single choice for each person book of the year now I'm going to be cheeky and just uh, mention a very close second of Tom Holland's packs which is a great a double-edged compliment but that is a fantastic book that come out uh, earlier on in the year but uh, uh, putting my colors to the mask I would still say conflict Listeners, if you want to give a leg up to a lord and a general this year, do buy a conflict by Andrew Robertson and, and General David Petraeus. Uh, it put simply, it's excellent. Anna Reid, a nasty little war. Uh, I'm going to go. I've mentioned uh, Danny Finkelstein a few times in my books of the year, and, I, and it's a very strong contender. But uh, just on the basis of contrariness and bigging up my old mucker, Martin Rady, I'm going with the the Middle Kingdoms. I echo uh, Jesse by. Um commending the savage storm fabulous book first part of james holland's two-part story of uh, the italian campaign so there's another one to come which i think he's writing at the moment but my choice i'm afraid it has to be the forgers so i'm going to recommend something which uh, i haven't i've only read the first chapter of but which i'm now looking forward to reading avidly on the basis of of that brilliant uh, start and that is of course roger morehouse's the forgers well, I'm going to wrap up uh, just to say a huge thank you to everyone who's listened to us throughout the year. Uh, it's been a joy, actually, doing the podcast. It's fun uh, for us, uh, and I hope it's fun for you, too, and you actually learn something from it. I think you probably do, given 
that uh, we've got some pretty healthy audience figures now and we hope we carry that on into the new year. So we've been talking about our new series, Battleground 44, so we hope you'll join us for that. But in the meantime, from all of us here, we just want to wish you a very... Happy Christmas! Happy Christmas.